The Lone Trick-or-Treater by Will Rain. I always loved this time of year, ever since I was old enough to appreciate the joy in it. My father would get just as excited as I would when it was time to adorn our festive garb and begin the quest for sugary goodness. While we passed by other parents walking with their little ghouls and goblins, my dad would just smile at the expressions he would receive, being one of the few who took the season as seriously as the children. Whatever costume I wore, he had something to match. If I dressed as a vampire, he would be my elder, watching over his apprentice. While we would sometimes choose a more fun theme, like the year we went as Shrek and Donkey, with me being the latter, we often went for something far more sinister. Evil clowns, father and son zombies in search of brains to go with our candy, and of course, the aforementioned vampire duo, fit with fake blood splashed across our faces to assure any of the unsuspecting homeowners we would visit that we had our fill for the night, seeking only some goodies for dessert now. I suppose it was that very thing that didn't cause me more than a second glance at the particularly unsettling dressed kid while I went door to door with my son last year. As always, the streets were positively packed with extravagantly dressed children. Some walked alongside their folks, while others traveled in packs. This one, though, he strolled the sidewalk alone. The first time we passed him by, I was honestly quite impressed by how realistically the blood splatter was applied to the leathery apron. The blank-faced mask that was designed to look like some sort of creepy porcelain doll had more specks of those crimson stains, looking as though it had gushed from the left. Given that was the hand in which he held the gore-lined butcher's knife while the other swung the pillowcase half-filled with candy by his side, I had to admire the attention to detail. He was a little taller than my son, who was only eight at the time, but I still couldn't help but wonder why any parent would allow their child to walk the streets alone, even if they were a great many other children out that night. For a moment, I considered approaching the boy to inquire if he needed help, or perhaps wanted to join us, but when Maddie vigorously pulled my hand to the right, having noticed another house with their porch lights shining brightly, I just let out a chuckle before allowing myself to be dragged to the side. By the time I turned my head back to the road, I saw no trace of the eerie little kid. Following in my father's footsteps, I would never miss spending this time with my son. I carried the tradition of getting equally as dressed up as Maddie, allowing him to choose this year's theme, as my dad had with me. Though my boy wasn't quite as much into the scary stuff as I was at his age, I managed to gently nudge him to dressing as zombie versions of his requested Captain America and Spider Kid. Spider-Man, Daddy, he would insist whenever I called him that, but it was strangely adorable how flustered he would get in correcting me. All right, three-foot Spider-Man, I said to laugh, to which he giggled and playfully slugged me in the gut before thwipping to the next house. It was maybe ten minutes later when we passed by the lone trick-or-treater in the porcelain mask again, but he looked a little different. There were a few rips across the sleeves of his stained white shirt, as well as the leather-like apron. It's very possible that I simply hadn't noticed it before, but I could swear he had more blood splashed across him now. I like your costume, he said, not so much as glancing up at me when he walked by. His voice was gravelly, monotone, almost making me think of a 50-year-old two-pack-a-day smoker rather than a young boy.
His tone was still as light as anyone whose voice had not yet broken, but the raspiness was nothing short of unnerving. I like yours too, I replied, mostly sincerely. I glanced back at the kid after we walked by to see there was just as much blood across his back as the front. He creeped me out for sure, but I still convinced myself it was nothing more than an effective performance of one fully embracing their chosen character. The fact that his pillowcase appeared more bulging than the last time I saw him was enough for me to believe he was really just into the season. Perhaps he had a water gun filled with red water tucked away under his apron to apply more as the night went on. The sticky-looking gore on his knife looked no different than it did last time, as far as I could tell anyway, so I just shook off my overactive imagination. For the remainder of our night of retreating, I caught only one more glimpse of the boy. It's time from a distance. Again, he looked as though he was even more bloody than before, but given how far away he was, as well as the darkness surrounding him between the sporadic street lamps, I didn't dwell on it. Once Maddie began to whine about his feet hurting, I felt content in the knowledge that we had accumulated more than enough goodies and it was time to head back home. The previously crowded sidewalks had only the occasional group making their way in one direction or another, each looking as wiped out as we were. Moments later, I was carrying my son with his overstuffed bag of candy looped around my shoulder. He pulled back his mask to nuzzle his face into the nape of my neck, and I couldn't help but smile as I recalled resting in my father's arms this way. Can I have some candy when we get home? He said, lifting his head, sounding as though he was on the brink of drifting away into dreamland. I gotta check it all first, kiddo. I know, but can I pick something out you can check that first? I just really want a... A wide, an exhausted yawn cut his words short, inspiring him to rest his head back into the previous spot. I just really want a Reese's cup. We'll see when we... When I noticed a silhouetted figure limping out from behind a house on the corner one that signified we'd almost reached our destination. It took me a second to realize who it was. The boy held neither his bag of candy nor the gore-lined blade as he shuffled toward me. Help! He called out as he struggled to push himself forward. It was then that I heard a rage-fueled scream, not from the kid but from the man who pursued him. As he rounded the side of the house, the boy was trying to escape. I saw a far more realistic blood-stained knife in his hand. I knew I had to act quickly, but my first and most crucial task would be to secure the safety of my son. After another quick glance to assure myself the man chasing the boy down had only one target in mind, I sat Maddie down on the sidewalk, looping the candy bag around his arm. With our home being just on the other end of the street, just beyond the stoop ahead, I gave him one mission. Run home, Maddie. Run home and don't look back. When you get there, tell Mommy to call the police, okay? He just nodded and took off in the direction of our home. I felt my stomach lurch with the thought of him making his way back home on his own, even if it was only another minute or two on foot. Still, I knew I had to get him as far away as possible before I did what I had to do. 
By the time I reached the front yard of the house, the boy in the blood-stained apron was staggering away from. The tall and well-built man was almost on top of him. Hey! I yelled out as I ran toward them, hoping to get the attention of the man who seemed to growl as he ran for the kid. Taking no time to second-guess my actions, I tackled the guy as he lunged at the kid. It was as I raised from the man that I planted on the grass, knocking the knife out of his hand, that I saw four deep and grizzled gashes across the right side of his face. When the boy in the porcelain mask walked up beside me, pointing his finger at the man, I noticed the fresh blood and tissue caked to his fingernails. He stabbed me, he said, hiccuping with tears trickling down his mask. I didn't do nothing to him, but he, he cut me anyway. The man gazed up at the kid with wide, almost shocked eyes while attempting to break free. When I called out, hoping to get the attention of some of the neighbors, he caught me across the face with his fist, instantly causing my head to spin, and he took the opportunity to lunge for the kid a second time. I felt my body roll to the ground while the boy let out a high-pitched yelp. It took only a few seconds for my senses to return, but when I looked up to see the man clutching the child in the blood-soaked apron by his good leg, I had no time to waste. Again, I jumped on the guy, deflecting another attempted attack on my swelling face while jabbing at his midsection. Run, kid! I said, trying to grab the writhing man by his arms to hold him in place. As the boy began to back away, a few other people left their homes to see what was going on. Some of them ran up, quickly assisting me in keeping the man from reaching his target. When I was able to release my grasp on the guy, trying to ignore the pulsing pain from where he had clocked me, I turned to look back at the likely traumatized boy. When I saw no trace of him, I was momentarily worried someone had snatched him up amid all the craziness. I suppose that's just fatherly instinct, to go straight to the worst case scenario when it was far more likely that he headed back to his home after such a fright. Still, though I hadn't had a chance to see how badly he was wounded, I knew he would still require medical assistance. After a while, the police arrived at the scene, wasting little time and cuffing the man whose blood was still dripping on his shoulder. Paramedics rolled up moments later, one of whom checked me out to make sure my swollen shut eye was nothing more than a well-cleaned clock, while the other attended to the guy with his hands bound behind his back. Nobody knew anything about the kid in his blood-stained apron, nor did anyone have any idea where he'd run off to. Over the next few hours, several more cars rolled up to the house on the corner just past the stoop. The yellow tape had already sealed the place away from the public at that point, but I had to stick around for a bit to answer some questions. Once I was permitted to leave, I returned to my home to find Maddie passed out on the couch with a few empty Reese's wrappers on the coffee table beside him. I explained everything that had occurred to my wife before taking a well-earned shower. Becca prepared an ice pack for my eye while I cleaned myself up, which honestly felt heavenly when I held it to my puffy face. It wasn't until the following morning that I walked out to meet the group of onlookers to see a healthy amount of police doing their job, taking little note of the curious observers. It would seem I'd arrived just in time to watch them remove the bodies from the house those that were buried in the basement. I watched in horror while they carried out the body bags, seven of them in all. The idea that someone capable of such acts lived so close to us was bad enough, but the fact that the subdivision was filled with kids the previous night, many of whom who had knocked on his door, 
almost caused my breakfast to escape. When one of the officers who had questioned me waved me over as I stared on from the other side of the street, I wasn't sure what else I could offer to the investigation. As two other cops opened up a large trunk they had retrieved, the box had held his trophies this bastard kept to commemorate his foul deeds, I found myself truly lost for words. The blood-splattered porcelain doll mask sat upon a variety of other objects, each wearing its own faded crimson stains. From what I could tell, all of the items the chest held were from one child's Halloween costume or another, and this was the season in which the sinister owner of this house liked to hunt. The officer kept me somewhat in the loop of the investigation over the weeks that followed, as she was just as befuddled as I was about the child who somehow tore into the face of his murderer from beyond the grave. She admitted she'd witnessed more than her fair share of bizarre things since joining the force, but we were both saddened and heartbroken by the crimes they uncovered. After the identities of the victims were discovered and their grieving parents were given the news of the truth of their children's disappearance, we finally had a name for the lone trick-or-treater. The 11-year-old Zachary Walsh had somehow gotten separated from the group he walked sidewalks with that Halloween night the year before. He lived in a neighborhood many miles away, but just about everyone in that subdivision looked for him for hours after hearing about his disappearance. Unfortunately, he had likely already been snatched up by the time the search party even had a chance. My heart aches for the boys, as well as the others who lost their lives to that son of a bitch, but I hope their parents at least have some closure now. Given that young Zachary was the most recent of the sick bastard's victims, I can't say why he chose to skip this Halloween with it being his hunting season at all. I wonder if perhaps we managed to stop him before he had a chance. Maybe that was the young boy's mission all along. To stop his killer before he was able to add a new trophy to his precious box. Halloween feels a little different this year. Yes, Maddie and I are just as excited as ever, but I don't know if it'll ever be the same for me. My son gave me free reign on what our costumes would be this time, as he's quite the perceptive kid. I'm sure you can tell that I'm far more distracted than usual, but maybe dusting off the old vampire outfits my father and I wore so many years ago will get me back in the spirit. Take from this tale what you will, be it just another spooky story for the haunting hour or even the ravings of a gullible idiot. Whatever the case, just please do me one favor. Keep a close eye on your children, whether they're by your side as they go door to door in search of goodies, or traversing the sidewalks in a group of fellow candy seekers. Make sure they know not to stray. You can never tell if the truly horrific monsters of this world look anything like the personification of their nature, or live just a few doors down from where you rest your weary bones each night. The Demon Lover by Elizabeth Bowen Toward the end of her day in London, Miss Dover went around to her shut-up house to look for several things she wanted to take away. 
Some belonged to herself, some to her family, who were now used to their country life. It was late August. It had been a steamy, showery day. At the moment, the trees down the pavement glittered in an escape of humid yellow afternoon sun. Against the next batch of clouds already piling up ink-dark, broken chimneys and parapets stood out. In her once familiar streets, as in any unused channel, an unfamiliar queerness had silted up. A cat wove itself in and out of her railings, but no human eyes watched Mrs. Dover's return. Shifting some parcels under her arm, she slowly forced round her latch key in an unwilling lock, then gave the door, which had warped, a push with her knee. Dead air came out to meet her as she went in. The staircase window, having been boarded up, no light came down into the hall. But one door, she could just see, stood ajar, so she went quickly through into the room and unshuttered the big window in there. Now the prosaic woman, looking about her, was more perplexed than she knew by everything that she saw, by traces of her long former habit of life. The yellow smoke stain up in the white marble mantelpiece, the ring left by a vase on the top of the escritoire, the bruise in the wallpaper where the door being thrown open wildly, the china handle had always hit upon the wall. The piano, having gone away to be stored, had left what looked like claw marks on its part of the parquet. Though not much dust had seeped in, each object wore a film of another kind, and the only ventilation being the chimney, the whole drawing room smelled of the cold hearth. Miss Dover put her parcels down on the escritoire, then left the room to proceed upstairs. The things she wanted were in a bedroom chest. She'd been anxious to see how the house was. The part-time caretaker she shared with some neighbors was away this week on the holiday, known to not yet be back. At the best of times, he did not look in often, and she was never sure that she trusted him. There were some cracks in the structure left by the last bombing on which was anxious to keep an eye. Not that one could do anything. Not that one could do anything. A shaft of refracted daylight now lay across the hall. She stopped the dead and stared at the hall table. On this lay a letter addressed to her. She thought first, then the caretaker must be back. All the same, who, seeing the house shuddered, would have dropped a letter at the box? It was not a circular. It was not a bill. And the post office redirected to the address in the country everything for her that came through the post. The caretaker, even if he were back, did not know she was due in London today. Her call here had been planned to be a surprise, so his negligence in the manner of this letter, leaving it to wait in the dust, annoyed her. Annoyed, she picked up this letter which bore no stamp, but it cannot be important or they would know. She took the letter rapidly upstairs with her, without a stop to look at the writing till she let it in light. The room looked over the garden, and sharpened and lowered the trees and rank lawns seemed already to smoke with dark. Her reluctance to look again at the letter came from the fact that she felt intruded upon, and by someone contemptuous of her ways. However, in the tenseness preceding the fall of rain, she read it. It was a few lines. Dear Kathleen, you will not have forgotten that today is our anniversary, and the day that we said. 
The years have gone by at once, slowly and fast. In view of the fact that nothing has changed, I shall rely upon you to keep your promise. I was sorry to see you leave London, but was satisfied that you would be back in time. You may expect me, therefore, at the hour arranged. Until then. Okay. Mrs. Drover looked for the dates. It was today's. She dropped the letter onto the bed springs and picked it up to see the writing again. Her lips, beneath the remains of lipstick, began going white. She felt so much the change in her own face that she sent to the mirror, polished a clear patch in it, and looked once urgently and stealthily in. She was confronted by a woman of 44, with eyes staring out under a hot brim that had been rather carelessly pulled down. She had not put on any more powder since she left the shop where she ate her solitary tea. The pearls her husband had given her on their marriage hung loose round her now rather thinner throat, slipping in the V of the pink wool jumper her sister knitted last autumn as they sat round the fire. Mrs. Drover's most normal expression was one of controlled worry, but of assent. Since the birth of the third of her little boys, attended by a quite serious illness, she had an intermittent muscular flicker to the left of her mouth, but in spite of this, she could always sustain a manner that was at once energetic and calm. Turning from her own face as precipitously as she had gone to meet it, she went to the chest where the things were, unlocked it, threw up the lid, and knelt to search. But as rain began to come crashing down, she could not keep from looking over her shoulder at the striped bed at which the letter lay. Behind the blanket of rain, the clock of the church that still stood struck six. With rapidly heightened apprehension, she counted each of the slow strokes. The hour arranged. My God, she said. What hour? How should I? After twenty-five years... The young girl was talking to the soldier in the garden, had not even completely seen his face. It was dark. They were saying goodbye under a tree. Now and then, for it felt from not seeing him at this intense moment as though she'd never seen him at all, she verified his presence for these few moments longer by putting out a hand, which he each time pressed without very much kindness and painfully onto one of the breast buttons of his uniform. That cut of the button on the palm of her hand was principally what she was to carry away. This was so near the end of a leave from France that she could only wish him already gone. It was August 1916. Being not kissed, being drawn away from and looked at intimidated Kathleen until she managed spectral glitters in the place of his eyes. Turning away and looking back up the lawn, she saw through branches of trees the drawing room window at light. She caught a breath for the moment when she could go running back there into the safe arms of her mother and sister and cry, What shall I do? What shall I do? He's gone. Hearing her catch her breath, her fiancé said without feeling, Cold? You're going away, such a long way. Not so far as you think. I don't understand. You don't have to he said. You will. You know what we said. But that was 
suppose you are, I mean, suppose. I shall be with you, he said, sooner or later. You won't forget that. You need to do nothing but wait. Only a little more than a minute later, she was free to run up the silent lawn. Looking in through the window at her mother and sister, who did not for the moment perceive her, she already felt that unnatural promise drive down between her and the rest of all humankind. No other way of having given herself could have made her feel so apart, lost, and forsworn. She could not have plighted a more sinister troth. Kathleen behaved well when some months later her fiancé was reported missing, presumed killed. Her family not only supported her, but were able to praise her courage without stint because they could not regret, uh, as a husband for her, the man they knew almost nothing about. They hoped she would, in a year or two, console herself, and had it been only a question of consolation things that might have gone much straighter ahead. But her trouble behind just a little grief, was a complete dislocation from everything. She did not reject other lovers, for these failed to appear. For years, she failed to attract men. With the approach of her thirties, she became natural enough to share her family's anxiousness on the score. She began to put herself out, to wonder. At thirty-two, she was very gently relieved to find herself being courted by William Drover. She married him, and the two of them settled down in the quiet Aberroyal part of Kensington. In this house, the years piled up. Her children were born, and they all lived till they were driven out by the bombs of the next war. Her movements as Mrs. Dover were circumscribed, and she dismissed any idea that they were still watched. As things were, dead or living, the letter writer sent her only a threat. Unable for some minutes to go on kneeling with her back exposed to the empty room, Mrs. Drover rose from the chest to sit on an upright chair whose back was firmly against the wall. The destitute of her former bedroom, her married London home's whole air of being a cracked cup from which memory, with its reassuring power, had either evaporated or leaked away made a crisis. And at just this crisis, the letter writer had knowledgeably struck. The hollowness of the house this evening cancelled years on years of voices, habits, and steps. Through the shut windows, she only heard rain fall on the roofs around. To rally herself, she said that she was in a mood, and for two or three seconds, shutting her eyes, told herself that she had imagined the letter. But she opened them, and there it lay on the bed. On the supernatural side of the letter's entrance, she was not permitting her mind to dwell. Who in London knew she meant to call at the house today? Evidently, however, that had been known. The caretaker had come back, had had no cause to expect her. He would have taken the letter in his pocket to forward it at his own time through the post. There was no other sign that the caretaker had been in. But if not... Letters dropped in the doors of deserted houses do not fly or walk to tables and halls. They do not sit on the dust of empty tables with the air of certainty that they will be found. There is needed some human hand, but nobody but the caretaker had a key. Under the circumstances she did not care to consider, a house can be entered without a key. 
It was possible that she was not alone now. She might be waited for downstairs. Waited for... Until when? Until the hour arranged. At least that was not six o'clock. Six has struck. She rose from the chair and went over to the locked door. The thing was to get out. To fly. No, not that. She had to catch her train. As a woman whose utter dependability was the keystone of her family life, she was not willing to return to the country, to her husband, her little boys, and her sister, without the objects she'd come to fetch. Resuming her work at the chest, she set about making up a number of parcels in a rapid, fumbling, decisive way. These, with her shopping parcels, would be too much to carry. These meant a taxi. At the thought of the taxi, her heart went up and her normal breathing resumed. I'll ring up a taxi. The taxi cannot come too soon. I shall hear the taxi out there running its engine till I walk calmly down to it through the hall. I'll ring up. But no. The telephone is cut off. She tugged at a knot. She had tied wrong. The idea of flight... He was never kind to me, not really. I don't remember him kind at all. Mother said he never considered me. He was set on me. That was what it was. Not love. Not love, not meaning a person well. What did he do to make a promise like that? I can't remember. But she found that she could. She remembered with such dreadful acuteness that the twenty-five years since then dissolved like smoke and she instinctively looked for the wheel left by the button on the palm of her hand. She remembered not only all that he said and did but the complete suspension of her existence during that August week. I was not myself. They all told me so at the time. She remembered, but with one white burning blank as where acid had dropped on a photograph. Under no conditions could she remember his face. So wherever he may be waiting, I shall not know him. You have no time to run from a face you do not expect. The thing was to get to the taxi before any clock struck what could be the hour. She would slip down the street and round the side of the square to where the square gave to the main road. She would return in the taxi, safe to her own door, bring the solid driver into the house with her to pick up the parcels from room to room. The idea of a taxi driver made her decisive, bold. She unlocked her door, went to the top of the staircase, and listened down. She heard nothing. But while she was hearing nothing, the passing of air of the staircase was disturbed by a draft that traveled up to her face. It emanated from the basement, down where a door or window was being opened by someone who chose this moment to leave the house. The rain had stopped. The pavements steamily shone as Miss Drover let herself out by inches from her own front door to the empty street. The unaccompanied houses opposite continued to meet her look with their damaged stare. 
Making toward the thoroughfare and the taxi, she tried not to keep looking behind. Indeed, the silence was so intense. One of those creaks of London silence exaggerated this summer by the damage of war that no tread could have gained on hers unheard. Where her streets debouched, on the square where people went on living, she grew conscious of and checked her unnatural pace. Across the opened end of the square, two buses impassively passed each other. Women, a perambulator, cyclist, a man wheeling a barrow, signalized once again the ordinary flow of life. At the square's most populous corner should be, and was, the short taxi rank. This evening, the only one taxi, but this, although it presented its blank rump, appeared already to alertly waiting for her. Indeed, without looking round, the driver started his engine and she panted up from behind and put her hand on the door. As she did, the clock struck seven. Taxi faced the main road. To make the trip back to her house, it would have to turn. She'd settled back on the seat and the taxi had turned before she, surprised by its knowing movement, recollected that she had not said where. She leaned forward to scratch at the clasp panel that divided the driver's head from her own. The driver braked to what was almost a stop, turned around, and slid the glass panel back. The jolt of this flung Mrs. Dover forward till her face was almost to the glass. Oh, the aperture driver and the passenger, not six inches between them, remained for an eternity eye to eye. Mrs. Drover's mouth hung open for some seconds before she could have issued her first scream. After that, she continued to scream freely and beat with her gloved hand on the glass all round as the taxi, accelerating without mercy, made off with her into the hinterland of deserted streets. <laughs>